0: This is a quote now from Isaiah chapter nine, which is the prophecy that includes the phrase, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's the Roman road, the Via Maris, ran from Egypt up to the Sea of Galilee, then tracked up through the Jordan Valley there, and then cut off to Damascus. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, again, that's east of the Jordan River, land of Bashan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned." The region and the shadow of death. Jesus moving to the region, covered with these monuments to the dead, was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 9. And in fact, they identify one location near a kibbutz called Shemir, as sort of the cultural center or religious center of the culture that built those dolmens. That's the one that's got that dolmen with a 50-ton capstone. The tabletop stone weighs as much as two fully loaded 18-wheel semi-tractor trailer trucks.
1: Hey, welcome back to Blurry Creatures. We have Derek Gilbert on the show this week. Derek's actually in Israel right now showing people the places he's talking about on this episode. Um, we had a great time talking to Derek. I'm up late finishing the edit for this week's episode. And I hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you want to become a member of the show and enjoy extra perks, we actually just announced today that we're going to be doing a Blur-B-Q. That's right. We're going to do a barbecue Blurry creature style. If you want to get tickets to the Blur-B-Q, that's hard to say, you can become a member and we're going to send out a message to everyone how to get tickets. We're going to do that in uh, May right before the summer so you also get extra episodes we're doing a movie night in a couple days for the gold members and we're always doing fun stuff so head over to com slash members become a member of the show let's get derek on this one Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to Blurry Creatures, Derek Gilbert. You're an author, podcaster, news anchor, and I'm sure you're the best dad of all time too.
2: (laughs) Awesome, yeah, awesome to have you back, Derek. Hey, Derek. Before we start, tell us a bit what you've been working on, because
0: you got you. I feel like you do so many things. Well, the funny thing is, Sharon and I talk about this, and sometimes we feel like real slugs, like we're not getting the kind of (laughs) content as much content as we want. But then I look, you know, at, at how much we've actually put out since we've been here in the Ozarks, we, we were coming up on our eighth anniversary. It was just about eight years ago, almost exactly mm-hmm. that we, uh, we made the big move in the middle of a snowstorm. And, uh, since then, you know, I'm looking at it cause I've got these little framed copies of the beautiful artwork, the cover art by uh, Jeffrey Martis for the books that we've done. And there are nine up there on the wall. So I guess I'm not that much of a slug. It's just, there's so much that I want to yeah. get out and only so many hours in the day. We've been working on a book file, a while, and I think it's best that we didn't put it out last year as we'd scheduled because we, we've learned some things that are going to go into the book. Uh, Sharon and I are working on another co-authored book called The Gates of Hell, which is a reference to Jesus declaring his divinity at the base of Mount Hermon, oh, yeah. right in front of Caesarea Philippi. I mean, you know, Judd Burton, yeah, that's the, the two words, when you ask Judd, why are the Nephilim important? Why do they matter? He says, two words. Caesarea Philippi. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, he's right. But we got one on Judd now because <laughs> uh, a few months ago, I was working on, on something, just doing some reading. We, we've assumed that the Essenes, or I always thought the Essenes were all based at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found right. in 1947. Turns out that's not true. There were Essenes in Jerusalem and there were scenes, Essenes and in the community near the town of Magdala kind of at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Mary Magdalene yeah. was from. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene.
2: Mm.
0: Well, the Essenes who lived in the north wrote the second part of the Book of Enoch. Now, this may be something you already know. Mike Heiser knew about this. That's why it's in his Companion to the Book of Enoch. It's like, oh, okay, I'm just slow to the party here. But chapters 37 through 72, what they call the Book of Parables, mm-hmm. includes some uh, references Messianic references to a character called the son of man that had not previously appeared in any Jewish writing Except for that passing reference in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has the The vision of the uh, one like a son of man, you know, the ancient of days at his right hand is one like a son of man But there's nothing else mentioned in Daniel about that. Who is this guy? Why is he there? Who is he? But in the second part of the book of first Enoch the book of parables you find a lot of yeah. references in there to this character. He's the messianic character who comes back and punishes wicked kings and fallen angels and evil landowners and so on. And then Jesus takes that title and runs with it, you know, like 82 times or something in the New Testament. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, so really, we really do need to take the book of Enoch really, really seriously. Ooh. But in the, in the process of reading about this community— of Essenes. And this, this section of the book, which according to scholars was probably completed by about the time of the death of Herod the Great. So, in other words, just before Jesus and John the Baptist were born. Wow. All right. I stumbled onto this paper by a German scholar that was trying to identify the location of Bethany across the Jordan. This is the place where Jesus was baptized, according to the Gospel of John, chapter one, beginning at verse 26. John is confronted by guys sent by the Pharisees in Jerusalem who are questioning him. They're they're interrogating him. Who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? And John says, no, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Mm. So, all right. For 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to find the location of Bethany across the Jordan. Across the Jordan means east of the Jordan River. The only Bethany we can identify for 2,000 years is the one on the Mount of Olives, which is obviously west of the Jordan River. It's across the valley from the Temple Mount. So, where is it? The early church father, Origen, toward the end of the second century, went to Palestine and he tried to find it. Nobody knows where it is. So, he said, I think the actual name is Beth Abara, and that's what the King James version has. But that's not what's in the Greek. The Greek text reads Bethania, Bethania across the Jordan, or Bethania across the Jordan. Well, UNESCO, and it, you know the United right. Nations says it, so it must be true, right? <laughs> Bethany across the Jordan is a spot on the Jordan side of the river, of course, near Jericho. And that's designated now a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. Mm. So the Kingdom of Jordan, God bless them, they're spending like 300 million dollars to turn it into a tourist location. Of course they are. And I can't yeah, I can't begrudge them that. I mean pe- Jordan doesn't really have much yeah. else. They got a lot of sand, mm-hmm. they got a lot of rocks. And so they make cement. Mm-hmm. That's that's their main national export and tourism. Mm-hmm. So if they can draw Christian tourists to uh, Jordan, God bless yeah. them. We we've been there twice, felt safe, wonderful people, great food and Petra is a bucket list oh, item. Man. But this location near Jericho is not where Jesus was baptized. This is not Bethany across the Jordan. This German scholar who wrote this paper pointed out that in 1877, a fellow who was actually a friend of Sir Charles Warren who found that inscribed stone inside the temple on the summit of Mount yeah. Uh, this fellow, Lieutenant Claude Conder, who was sent by the Palestine Exploration Fund, wrote in a paper. I think I figured it out. I'm paraphrasing, of course, because that's not how British get... (laughs) (laughs) He said that Bethania, the Greek, is probably just a slightly different transliteration of Batania. And Batania was the Greek form of the name Bashan. So, Bethany across the Jordan should be Bashan across the Jordan. Oh, boy. that's basically the Golan Heights. That's the area to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee, but it included basically everything up to the Jordan River, north of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, the Jordan River runs essentially from Mount Hermon down to the Sea of Galilee and then on down to the Dead Sea. Does that make sense? Well, when you look at the Gospels and you see where Jesus called his first disciples, beginning at verse 35 of John chapter one, you know, Jesus appears the next day after he's grilled by the Pharisees. John says, oh, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the day after that, Jesus starts calling disciples. Philip, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip, Andrew, Peter, they're all from Bethsaida. That's a mile north of the Sea of Galilee. Okay. All right. So if they're there while John is baptizing and Jesus appears, it's not likely, it's not, uh, my, my point is this, Andrew, Peter, and, uh, and James and John were partners in a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee which is 90 miles away from the Nesco site.
2: Yeah, it doesn't make it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a brisk walk for him to get all the way.
0: That's a brisk yeah. walk. So if your partner's in an active fishing business that's doing well according to uh, the Gospels, because they had servants who were working for them according to the Gospel of Mark, you're not likely following John as a disciple 90 miles away down near Jericho. I mean, a 90-mile walk, that's, that's like, what, four or five days? Yeah.
2: So, wait, so, you, Derek, are you telling me you think you figured out where the spot where Jesus is going to baptize? I
0: think it's north of the Sea of Galilee in that region called Bashan. Now, why is that relevant? Because Bashan in the ancient world, right? Yeah. Kingdom of Og, the first military target of Moses and the Israelites. Why Bashan? Because Bashan, which is a cognate for a Ugaritic word, which is a Semitic language similar to Hebrew, means place of the serpent. Oh. Dude. Bashan is covered with megalithic monuments to the dead, for the cult of the dead. I mean, besides Gilgal Rephaim, yeah. you know, Israel's Stonehenge, which uh, is dated to like 3750 BC. And it's it's like half again, more stone in it than Stonehenge. Yeah. So it's bigger and older than Stonehenge. Besides that, you've got about 5,000 dolmens all over the, the Golan Heights. Those are these megalithic uh, structures that look like tables. In fact, that, that word is from a Britannic word. It's a Celtic language that means table. Huh. Two big slabs with a tabletop or Derek, the top or is top. Is this
2: the same area where Doug uh, thinks they found that serpent mound? Is this the same? Yes. Dude, this is getting this is a convergence right here. This is this is pretty crazy. Yeah. It is.
0: So we looking at this and, and looking into the dolmens as uh, Sharon and I have been for several years now. We wrote about these in our book Veneration, which is really about the cult of the Nephilim, right. you know, the ancestor veneration, which is really worshipping the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood of Noah. There's an Israeli archaeologist named Moshe Hartal who who led the survey of the Golan Heights. Israel's only been in control of it since 1967, which is why nobody knew that Gilgal Refa'im was even there until 1967. I mean the Syrians probably knew but they weren't telling they weren't anybody. Telling anybody yeah. But these dolmens, I mean, there are so many dolmens there that according to this guy, uh, Hartal, they can't use the term dolmen field to describe clusters of dolmens anymore because they don't know where one ends and the next one begins. That's wild. For all intents and purposes, the entire Golan Heights is one giant dolmen field. This tracks with Canaanite texts from around the time of the judges found at that ancient kingdom of Ugarit, where there's a story called the Epic of Akat, A-Q-H-A-T, is a young man who's uh, uh, approached by the war goddess named Anat, who wants his magic bow that was made for him by one of the gods. And Akat says, no, for one thing, it's mine. Secondly, you're a woman. What are you going to do with it? Okay, Akat, failing to notice that Anat, the war goddess, has a girdle made of human skulls, according to the texts. So bad move. She has him assassinated. His father, whose name is Daniel, goes looking for him. And three times in this epic poem says, when I, I, I will search for my son and when I find him, I will mourn for him and I will bury him in a tomb for the underworld gods, which is a phrase used elsewhere in these texts for the Rephaim. Yeah. Okay. So three times I will fi- I will mourn for him and I will bury him in a tomb for the underworld gods. The fourth time he finds his son. And says, so uh-huh. I will mourn for him and I will bury him in a tomb at Kinneret. Kinneret is the sea of Galilee. So, even in this kingdom, which is near the border of Syria and Turkey, back in the day, they knew that all the way down at the Sea of Galilee was a region where you buried the honored dead to put them amongst the Rephaim. Wow. Again, the the kingdom of Bashan. So, that's where Jesus went, where John was baptizing. It's within line of sight from the community of Essenes who wrote this second part of the book uh, of, the, of the book of the book of First Enoch, the book of Parables. I mean, they've got this little hill there called Mount Arbel uh, uh, that kind of oversees or overlooks the uh, community where these Essenes were were living. You climb this uh, this little mountain, you can see Mount Hermon off in the distance. You can see Capernaum on there on the shore of the Galilee. You can see Bethsaida up there, and uh, again the region of Bashan off in the distance, all visible while they were writing this or being inspired to write it. Possibly. No. And then Jesus, again, calling his first disciples from that region. That's where all of this took place. This region that was known as the entrance to the netherworld. Okay. A region covered with monuments to the dead. Now, here's the thing. That Gilgal Rephaim, this you know, circular monument looks like concentric rings, almost like a maze, yeah. where you have to work your way into the center. And in the center is this tumulus, which is a big pile of rocks over a tomb. We've been inside the central core, and there's a dolmen inside there don't know who was buried there, the archaeologist who did the most recent dig, uh, Dr. Michael Freakman, said it had been robbed out. They couldn't find yeah, it. The, the Smithsonian artifacts had there. been
2: there already, right? So they, uh... <laughs> yeah, Probably, yeah, yeah. Or the
0: Vatican, right? maybe the Vatican. Slooped it up. Right. But there's another monument that Dr. Freakman wrote about that's just like Gilgal Rephaim. It's about a third the size, but it's got that same structure, concentric rings around a central tumulus covering a dolmen. Mm. It's located on a little hill overlooking the Jordan River, a mile north of the Sea of Galilee, it's like half a mile from Bethsaida, yeah. where Philip, and Peter, and Andrew lived. There is no way they didn't know that thing was there. Right.
2: I'll spell it out for the for the dummies here. So this, I mean, nothing I think that Jesus John does, was yeah, nothing Jesus does is unintentional. We know that. It's just like at Caesarea Philippi, gates of hell will not prevail. Right. It was a warning shot across the bow. It was. It was Jesus. You, you know proclaiming his, his victory, in fact, stepping on, on that place where the, the watchers touched down, right? He went, yeah.
0: he went there, and he was baptized there, and then he led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is in Matthew chapter 4, and this is where it really goes, you know, it, it, it comes into focus. Led into the wilderness, tempted 40 days, 40 nights. The devil takes him to Jerusalem, sets him up on the pinnacle, mm-hmm. says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Then he takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. The only very high mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon. It is three times higher than any other peak. Mount Carmel, Mount Tabor, Temple Mount, forget it. Mount Hermon is three times higher than the next tallest mountain in Israel. It's there that Satan showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, look, if you bow the knee to me, I'll give all of this to you. And of course, Jesus said, uh, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And then in verse 12 of Matthew chapter four, When he had heard, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about uh, a mile from uh, Bethsaida. In the territory of Zebulun Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is a quote now from Isaiah chapter 9, which is the prophecy that includes the phrase, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's the Roman road, the Via Maris, ran Mm -hmm. from Egypt up to the Sea of Galilee, then tracked up through the Jordan Valley there and then cut off to uh, Damascus. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, again, that's east of the Jordan River, land of Bashan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, On them a light has dawned, the region and the shadow of death. Jesus moving to the region covered with these monuments to the dead was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 9, a light dawning on those who dwelled in the region and the shadow of death. The Jordan River runs through a valley between Mount Hermon up to the region of Dan, ancient city of Dan, down to uh, Chorazin, which is one of the cities that Jesus cursed, which was just north of uh, Capernaum, that area is uh, around an area that is called the Hula marsh. marsh, H-U-L-E-H. There used to be a lake there. The uh, Israelis drained it in the 50s to get rid of malaria. But the area around that marsh is just ringed with dolmens. Interesting. And in fact, they identify one location near a kibbutz called Shamir as sort of the cultural center or religious center of the culture that built those dolmens. That's the one that's got that dolmen with a fifty-ton capstone. The tabletop stone weighs as much as two fully loaded eighteen-wheel semi-tractor trailer trucks. How they get it up there? And somehow, somehow, in the Bronze Age, somebody managed to get that up on top of a dolman. and there are like four hundred more dolmens around it. And that's right on the edge of this marsh. Some big fellows, maybe some big fellows out there, huh? That we believe is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Oh, okay.
1: So, what what is the significance of the dolmen? Is it just is it like a fancy coffin
0: or is there actually some sort of... Is it like a gate? That's, that's the question. Scholars don't know. Even the guys who did this recent survey of all of the dolmens around the edge of this Hula Valley or the Jordan Valley that runs through the Hula Marsh, they admit they don't know. Scholars have been looking at these things since the beginning of the 19th century. So for 200 years, scholars have been looking at dolmens in the Golan Heights and in the Jordan Valley. And they don't know. They honestly don't know. It's hard to figure out because they've been there for, you know, some of them for as long as 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got a lot of tomb robbers, or what, they, what the archaeologists, they call night diggers. They go in there and, you know, rob them out. So there are very, very few. In fact, I'm only aware of one or two that have actually, uh, two that have not been robbed out, that have been excavated within the last few years. So they don't know. Were these actual burial sites? Some scholars say no. Others believe that they were used for sky burials. You'd put the, the dead relative on top of the dolmen until the birds picked it clean, and then you'd bury the bones in, a, in an ossuary, in a, in a shaft tomb somewhere else. Oh, well,
1: because we, you know, we talked a lot to a lot of people in the, about these burial mounds in North America, right? And they dug into them, and they find these giants in them, and you just wonder if they had some sort of understanding or maybe religious belief that if they buried their dead in a certain way, that they would, would they, do they think that maybe they would get a better place in the underworld
0: or transfer over? Is there some sort of... I think it has to do with the, the cult of the, the ancestors, which was uh, such a key part of the religion of the people in the ancient world, the ancient Near East. They, they believed, and, and this we know from Amorite texts, uh, that you had to have a ritual meal for your ancestors once a month. Every month on the night of no moon, so the 30th of the month, they had to invite them to a ritual called the Kispum and summon them by name. So it's kind of a necromancy ritual. And then you would feed them with, uh, you know, bread. And this is what the teraphim, those household idols. Were like used Abraham, for Abraham,
2: right? When they have those whole... Oh, Jacob. Or Jacob, sorry. When they took the house gods from the father-in-law, my, my brain... Exactly. Sort uh, of an L. Laban. <laughs> Laban. Thank you, man. <laughs> the brain, yeah. it's, it's dad brains got me here. Laban. Yeah. And she hit him and she took him with it, which is, was always like a weird passage. Right. Right. Kind of like.
0: Yeah. Why, why are these there and why are they so no. important? Why did Laban chase after him? Well, because the possession of the household idols, the teraphim meant that whoever possessed them was the one who owned the family estate. So wow. Jacob running off with them, or Rachel running off with them basically meant that Jacob would inherit Laban's estate. Interesting. Access to the household gods in that day and age in that period of history was so important that sons who disobeyed their parents were actually cut out of the will and they were denied access to the family gods. Wow. You, know, you can no longer talk to the family gods. I mean, that was a big, big deal. The other side of the coin is that if your descendants did not perform the ritual on a monthly basis and summon you to feed you bread, which they would you know, smear on the little face of a little statue there, and then pour out a drink offering so that you had something to drink in the afterlife, you ceased to exist. If they forgot your name. Hmm. You ceased to be, you faded away to nothingness. And, and this continued at least down to the time of David and even beyond. I mean, you remember when David was trying to get away from Saul, his wife, who was Saul's daughter, Michael, fooled the guards who were coming to take David away and kill him by putting the teraphim in the bed and putting hair on it to make it look like David. Oh. So even David's household, when he was living in the household of Saul, they had one of these household gods in his, in his home. And David's son, Absalom, in 2 Samuel 18, 18, this is such a weird verse, it's one of the few that I can remember. He erected a pillar in the uh, the Valley of the Kings, which you know, nobody really knows where that is. The, the pillar of Absalom that the tour guides show us in Jerusalem today, that's not the actual one. It's not it. But anyway, he erected this pillar to himself, for he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. And archaeologists know from the Amorite kings who lived in, uh, in that area, in what is now Syria, Lebanon, southern Turkey that they did this, they would erect these pillars so that people would remember to summon them and offer sacrifices to them so they wouldn't fade away. They wouldn't starve in the afterlife. So that's that's what I think this cult was all about. You had to continually appease the ancestral god the ancestral gods or the ancestral spirits when it but the, the reality of the situation was people were being deceived by demons. Right which were more than likely the uh, spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. And this type of ritual continues down to this day. You see it in uh, Madagascar where they take the the ancestors out of the tomb. Haiti, you see it in Mexico with the Day of the Dead. This continues down to this day. You can can trace this all the way back to the Nephilim. So all of this goes all the way back to Mount Hermon thousands of years ago.
2: I was going to say that it reminds me of what you see in Haiti where they they actually call try to call spirits up and have them possess them and they pour out you know they pour one out for their for their ancestors and they bring food. Right. It's interesting cuz in Japan it's 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 not a Middle Eastern thing. It's, it's it's a thing everywhere. And Right. So let me recap this real quick so we get so the Essenes who we know most famously for the Dead Sea Scrolls having I mean, in Qumran scrolls are found we actually that's how we actually know mm. that, that the book of the Book of Enoch predates all the New Testament stuff for which Enoch was tossed out because they thought that that it lifted from Jude and Peter etc so we know that 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 community exists but they also were elsewhere and they were monastic were they monastic or they were were they it, it
0: depended there, there appears to have been a split in the community at some point in the uh, second century BC I still don't have my head around this uh, uh, as I'm trying to Study on this, and I got to work fast because we're going to Israel in a um, month. Were you just there? I, I feel you like you, I
2: just saw photos. Maybe they, were old. Maybe they were they were memories again. Old older okay. photos. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, we have had to reschedule this this tour four oh. times because we were supposed to go back in 2020. Yeah, no one went anywhere. Um, then. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The tour companies are now making up for lost time. There were it appears to have been a split, and so you had the community at Qumran that uh, wanted to separate from the world entirely, and if you wanted to join their their community you had to agree to follow all of their rules specifically right. the, the community around the Sea of Galilee and the community in, in Jerusalem appeared to be more willing to um, mingle with other groups you know to uh, work alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and, and what have you neighbors they' better neighbors like, yeah, no, yeah. Leave us alone you know? I mean they yeah. still had their their rituals and their purity rituals and so forth, but they were not quite as strict as the Qumran community, which basically cut itself off from the, uh, mm-hmm. from the others. And in fact, you can see uh, evidence of this split. And this is why scholars are, are convinced that the book of parables in the book of First Enoch was not written by the community at Qumran, because there are things in that you know, beginning of chapter 37 that would not have been acceptable to the community at Qumran. Okay. For example, the idea that you, can, you could be forgiven through repentance Okay, this was something that that John the Baptist is is known for in the Gospels. You know, he was preaching a Baptist of repentance or a, a baptism of repentance, right. you know, for forgiveness. The, the Qumran community believed you were only forgiven if you joined their community and followed all of their rules. So, that was a fundamental Sounds difference. Sounds like some churches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no yeah, kidding. Seriously. Um seriously. So there were, anyway, that's that's why scholars believe that that okay, uh, so, a book of parables, the se- beginning of chapter 37, there's a kind of a division there between the Qumran community writing the first part and the second part coming from the community at the Sea of Galilee. So they,
2: this community wrote, we believe the parables, which is if, you, if you're familiar with the book uh, of Enoch, is, as Derek's talking about, is the second part of the book, but they this term son of man now predates Jesus, and Jesus called himself that 80-some 80, 80 odd times. But mm-hmm. when you're going through this linguistically- so I'm just going to recap this so my brain can wrap around it. They had a view of Mount Hermon and they had a view of Bashan and Jordan River and UNESCO and all those dummies that at, at the UN, <laughs> you know, either in cahoots to, to make some money for Jordan or they have it all wrong. And it's actually on the other side of the river. And this is the place that Jesus was baptized to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah. And this land is the land of Bashan. We know King Aga Bashan, but also... Yeah. Famously, a, a place of veneration for the dead, worship of the rephaim and of, of the spirits of the dead, Nephilim. So you have this whole this whole golden age being worshipped pre-flood. So Jesus is now the light that shines in the darkness on the side of, of Bashan, which is close enough for him to walk to call his his disciples. Right, and then down that river, and that place is covered in dolmens, which we know are part of the cult of the dead. But down the river there used to be another a marsh and or oh, now it's a it's a place but there's tons of dolmens there and you believe that is the biblical place for the valley of the shadow of death and right and that's because of the dolmens or because and also because it geographically fits am i on so far here
0: no you're, you're summarizing okay. it very well okay um, good and,
2: good uh, i'm just i'm kind of,
0: yeah there you go you're helping me out too we'll just we'll just transcribe that and that'll be a chapter for the course i'm just trying to <laughs> keep up man I, I i love it though because because i think this is this is
2: the context right like we We talk about this, Derek, we we talked about at at Mount Hermon, about at the gates of Hades, about the significance of geography. And and I think we're separated from this very much unless we go to Israel. And even then, it, it isn't, always the same as we, just, we can just prove with UNESCO. It's not always in, you know, Jesus is probably born or crucified at a, where's a bus stop now. It, these things that don't, that actual locations and, and meanings, but they, gosh, it's just the significance of being a light dawning. It would be his revelation or being revealed as the Messiah with the dove coming down. He's he baptized by John. It's in the place of complete and utter darkness. So all of that, valley of shadow of death. So we're talking like literally a place where, they buried and then worshiped the dead in, in this valley and this is the place where david walked and maybe they didn't want to go because it was blurry i don't know you know
1: do you think this is where the giants maybe came back in this area too like there's always these debates how did they yeah, go back yeah. did they do some sort of ritual in these areas to like resurrect themselves or something well, it sounds like
0: the, well know. We, we know that that practice was still continuing down in at least until the time of david probably down to the time of isaiah when you get down to the 7th century, because Isaiah was still condemning those who were eating forbidden forbidden food amongst the tombs, which was um, part of the, the, the problem. I mean, M- Moses and the Israelites 800 years earlier were hit with a plague uh, when they were on the plains of Moab before they crossed over at Jericho. Uh, 24,000 Israelites died before Phineas stopped it by getting stabby with a, a spear and so
2: uh, the actual, the actual language is right? some kind of language. A, he was very stabby yeah. with the
0: uh <laughs> spear. Yeah. It was, you know, you smite it or stabby. Smote, uh,
2: smite, smate. So it's, it's, a, it's a plural. Yeah, a it's exact the, it's translation. That's partisan.
0: But uh, was it was young, a young Israelite prince and a Midianite princess who were performing some sort of. Fertility rite, probably, in, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, in the sight of all Israel, according to uh, the, uh, the, the account in Numbers. But in Psalm 106, verse 28, it's, it's specified that the reason God got angry was that they were eating sacrifices offered to the dead. They yoked themselves to the Baal, the Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Now, we, we showed in our book, Veneration, that the word Peor is based on a Hebrew root that means opening or cleft or gap. And uh, in that context, probably means uh, the the opening or the Lord, because that's what Baal means, Lord of the uh, gates of hell, Lord of the opening to the netherworld. This probably took place at or very near the location of ancient Sodom. There is a dig going on as we record this tonight. The team is over there from Trinity Southwest University and Veritas International University digging at a site in Jordan called uh, Tal El Hammam. It's across from Jericho. It's kind of between Jericho and uh, Mount Nebo. You can see it from Mount Nebo as you're looking at Jericho. That's 12 o'clock. Mount Nebo's at about two o'clock. This city was the largest city in the southern Levant, which is Lebanon, Israel, Syria, Jordan, south of Hotzor. Hotzor is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon. 85 acres inside the city walls. To give you an idea to compare Jerusalem at the time of Abraham had about 12 acres inside, 10 acres inside the city wow. walls. So, you know, we think Jerusalem, well, Jer- Jericho, that must be really big because that was the first. No, Jericho had 12 acres inside the city walls. Wow. This city, 85 acres. And then when you include the areas outside down on the, the plain, which is very fertile because there's a, a perennial stream that runs down from uh, the site of the city. So it was always, uh, it always had water, yeah. even though it's like desert everywhere else around there, about 200 acres. So it was huge, Seven times the size
2: but, of, of Jericho.
0: right the thing that's interesting is that at the time and this was mentioned by the guy who found this this dr stephen collins in his book finding sodom just mentions it in passing it's like oh yeah there are like 1500 dolmens at the base of the city at the base of the tell you know the hill in which the city was found like wait what because they're like twenty five thousand in all between mount hermon and the dead sea And there were like 1,500 at the base of this city. And there are scholars going back to the 1940s who believe that Shittim, which is where Moses and the Israelites camped, was not down on the plains of Moab, but it was up on this hill. In other words, they were on the lower level of the location of Sodom that had been destroyed like 400 years earlier, right on top of the site of the temple, which may well have been the temple of Baal Peor. Mm. And they fell into the worship of this this God, and I asked the director of scientific analysis for this site on my podcast about three years ago, how are these dolmens at Sodom oriented? Because, you know, archaeoastronomy is right. a growing field. They can find if these were oriented toward the uh, the winter solstice, or, lunar or, calendar summer, or whatever, whatever. Yeah. whatever. He said, no, they were all aimed at what we think was the temple on Sodom. Interesting. Like, Oh, okay. Now, here's the thing. One of those two dolmens that I mentioned earlier that had not been robbed out was found by the team working right now at Tal El-Hammam. They found one that was kind of hidden on the side of a hill. It, it hadn't been touched. Oh. It hadn't been touched in almost 4,000 years. And they found, based on the pottery, the dating of the pottery inside of it, that it appears to have been used continuously since Sodom was founded around 4,000 B.C., so for more than two millennia, it was in constant use. They theorized because they didn't find more than you know, like, a, like a bone here and a bone there. They think the dolmens were used to house offerings to the dead. Okay? The dead ancestors, the dead relative would be put out on top of the dolmen, flesh picked clean, the bones were put in a shaft burial. And then once a year, and again, this is theorized because they didn't have found any texts yet to confirm this. But they believe that they um, would have a ritual where they would go to the shaft tomb pull out a bone of an ancestor they would bring it to the dolmen and they would put it inside the dolmen and as uh, time went on and the front of the dolmen got filled up they would just push everything to the back you know they would offer pottery they found some jewelry in some of these yeah. and uh, a few bones here and there so w- what does this mean I- again offerings to the dead apparently and it appears that sodom was part of or maybe the center of that cult in the southern part of the Levant. Whereas in the north, it appears to have been centered around that uh, massive dolmen at Shamir, which is at the northeast corner of that valley, the Hula Valley, so, uh, overlooking the Jordan River. So literally River.
2: the Valley of Death, Shadow of Death was full of dolmens. so ritual structures yeah. to which they made
0: offerings to the dead. Mm-hmm. We had thought uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, that Sharon and I thought that there was that area down there by Jericho, yeah. between Jericho and Sodom. That was the valley of the shadow of death. Still, you know, a reasonable hypothesis. I mean, in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 11, he says, uh, God tells him that the uh, the end of the war of Gog and Magog will be in the valley of the travelers east of the sea. That's a reference to the Dead Sea, east of the mm. sea. Okay, that's the Jordan side of the river. Travelers in Hebrew is Avarim. Yeah. When Moses was getting old and God said, okay, you're going to get one look at the promised land, climb this mountain mountain. Mount Nebo, he refers to it, God calls it this mountain of Avarim, this mountain of the travelers. This is a word that has an entry in the dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible because travelers doesn't refer to people on holiday in Jordan. It's a reference used by the Canaanites for the spirits of the Rephaim because these spirits crossed over or traveled from the realm of the dead to the land of the living. So there's something about that area down there Uh near Mount Nebo, near Sodom, That was connected to these spirits. In fact, one of the uh, last stops on the stations of the Exodus uh, actually, there are two that make reference to spirits of the dead. One is called Ovoth, which literally means spirits of the dead. The other is Ai Ha'avarim, which means ruins of the travelers or heaps of the travelers. And I think that may refer to the dolmens at the base of the ruined city of Sodom up on the hill.
1: You know, and people who just tuning in and, and don't know. I mean, this probably sounds like a, a, a you know a big lesson, yeah. Um, right <laughs> off the bat, can you talk about how the ancients viewed like Sheol and where they believe they went? Because obviously, they're not just doing this for nothing. They're not just doing this because it's ceremonial. They actually believe they're either sending people off or bringing people back, and there's this communication going on. And I think modern day people, when we hear this, we just think, oh yeah, the ancients were were out of their minds. Like they were just doing these weird rituals. And why were they going through all this effort? Why were they, you know, spending all this time and energy? If something, if there wasn't some sort of transaction going on, can you speak to what they believed they were doing when they were in this valley of death? We
0: we need to remember that the dominant culture of the ancient Near East, and that's a term that basically refers to the lands of the Bible, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, you know, the ancient Near East basically encompasses that, plus the nearby areas of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran. They, the Amorites, kind of set the religious and cultural tone for society from about the time of 2000 BC, which was roughly the time of Abraham, maybe a little before, down to the time of the uh, Exodus. The Amorites did not see a separation between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. The dead ancestors were always with you, okay? It's kind of an Eastern concept to us now. I mean, that's, you, know, you get Asian cultures where that's yeah. also very true to this day. African cultures where that's still very true. But here in the West, we've, we've lost that. But that was the worldview of the people who lived in and around the ancient Israelites. You had to appease the ancestors and provide for them, to provide sustenance for them in the afterlife. Otherwise, they they faded away. They ceased to exist. I think this is, actually, I think this is why Abraham and Sarah were so concerned that they didn't have a living descendant, a a son, an heir. There's a scholar by the name of Dr. Nicholas Wyatt who points out when uh, Abraham tells God, you know, I'm going to have to make Abraham, or rather uh, Eleazar of of Damascus, my heir. Uh, Dr. Wyatt believes that the phrase, Damascus is actually a scribal correction later because the scribe didn't understand what Abraham was saying. The word hot um, damashek means son of the cup, essentially, or ben ben meshek rather means son of the cup. Hot so, damashek means of Damascus. So, ben meshek, son of the cup, the one who pours out the libation or the drink offering every month to sustain the dead in the afterlife. Abraham saying, look, I don't have an heir. I'm going to have to name this Guy Eliezer, my servant, as the son of the cup to keep Sarah. Because Abraham didn't have a, the worldview that was revealed to the prophets later or to the uh, apostles, the disciples by Jesus. They didn't have the understanding of Sheol and Hades that uh, developed through time. Uh, there was a real change in the way Jews saw the uh, afterlife. Really, during the Second Temple period, we see some of that develop, like the, uh, the Book of First Enoch. It was believed in ancient Mesopotamia that your existence in the afterlife continued, but it was very dull, dreary, and gray. And if your descendants didn't provide for you through this monthly ritual, then you were condemned to try to subsist on, on clay and dirty water.
2: Wasn't there something, too, about, like, about having your name said, too, where like if, if people stopped naming you, then you would, see, you would right. cease
0: to, I don't know. Right. As in the pillar of Absalom, yeah. because he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. And, and, you know, we see this today, and I'm going to be very careful about this because I got a conference, a virtual conference yanked off the internet for uh, for, for making this point. But there is a, a social justice organization that's very famously been going around the country the last couple of years and saying their names and then pouring out a drink offering in honor of those who have fallen in confrontations with the police. and the founder, the co-founder, and the head of the Los Angeles chapter of this organization openly said in an interview, which you can still find on the internet, that they understood that they were literally summoning spirits of the dead. And that this was a spiritual working. It's like, this goes all the way back to the Amorites of, of you know, Abraham's day and before. So this is more than 4,000 years old.
2: And this may be, we don't know, and this could be also be a very dumb question, but we have the golden age and then, and then God pronounces judgment, Noah and his family are saved. And the Nephilim and the Watchers are in prison. Nephilim are wiped off the face of the earth, and then Noah restarts it. And then at some point, they somehow return to this idea of worshiping the the spirits that are the, the dead Nephilim, the heroes of old, and perhaps even the Watchers. We've talked about Gebekli Tepe and and Karahan Tepe and, and and their Watcher potentially Watcher connections. So you have. This happens though. We get to the Amorites and they're doing this. Like, how do you think this, that we got from a family being saved and we know there was sin there because all kinds of stuff happened to Noah in his tent right after, right? All these things go down from there, but do you think it has to do with a second, sort of a second incursion and the return of the Rephaim and they remind or there's hidden knowledge because you would think everyone's wiped out that they would have memory other than Noah and his family of this horrific golden age and, and sort of the, mm-hmm. the devolution of the earth into this place of carnage and cannibalism and destruction and death and and hedonism um so it's fascinating to me because you know then obviously we have Deut- Deuteronomy 32 and the dividing of the nations too so we have these territorial spirits and these in these entities that are placed over over nations so I could see that being part of it I guess but at some point these Amorites, which are familiar with with abraham are practicing this thing where do you think they got that because we went from a place of god saying nope and just noah and his fam and then i don't know how much time passes because I'm, I'm not good with chron- uh the chronological order necessarily but <laughs> at some point we're back to this debt you know and this is we get to the valley of shadow of death we're this death cult to this idea of we were worshiping these gone demigods of the golden age
0: I actually deal with this in my book, The Second Coming of Saturn. Yeah, which we we the, did an episode uh, you know, on. Very yeah. clever product. The product That's great. You
2: get good marketing. You need a Pepsi <laughs> can and be like, this episode brought to you by Pepsi.
0: <laughs> Sharon pointed me to um, the work of a husband and wife archaeologist team from UCLA, Giorgio Buccellati and uh, Marilyn Kelly Buccellati. They've been working at a site in northern Syria, started working there around 1990, if I remember right, called Tel Mozan. They, they very quickly realized this was a city that was a, a religious center for a people group called the Hurrians. The Hurrians, uh, in the Bible, they're called the Horites. They're very busy. Yeah, not to be <laughs> confused with the Russians. <laughs> uh, hey, he's got <laughs> it. He's, they're just hurrying Derek, oh, you miss it. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, archaeology humor. Yeah, I love yeah, it. I know. I'm here for it. Anyway, they found as they excavated this this site, and they dated the city probably to the middle of the fourth millennium B.C., about so about 3,500 B.C., that it was founded by a group of people called, uh, a culture called the kura araxes Civilization or the Trans-Caucasian Civilization. Uh, kura and Araxes are the two rivers on either side of the Caucasus Mountains in Armenia, hence the name. They've got a very unique style of pottery, so they can trace their movements from their origin point around 4000 BC, 4500 BC. Uh, they began to spread out kind of like the northern arc around Mesopotamia. So if you looked at a map and looked at the, uh, the Kurdish regions, really, of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, that's where the Hurrians were concentrated. But they moved down uh, to uh, the area of the Sea of Galilee, really, by about 2300 BC, and they continued on uh, even further south. And uh, they were all through the, uh, the Bible, even though we don't really recognize it. Uh, the uh, kings of the east in Genesis chapter 14, who came all the way from Elam, which is modern Iran, to fight against Sodom and Gomorrah, they did battle with the Horites at the edge of the wilderness of Paran, which is down near Mount Sinai. So the Horites were all through that area. There's evidence that the king of Shechem in the days of Jacob, whose name was Hamor, may have been a Hurrian. The king of Jebus, the city of the Jebusites, Jerusalem, in the time of David. Arana, he bought the threshing floor of Arana to stop the destroyer from slaying all the Israelites because of David's sin of calling the census. Arana is a Hurrian word that means Lord or King. Okay, so these Hurrians were all through the area. Uh, They were more important in biblical history than we realize. As part of their worship of their creator God, whose name is Kumarbi. Kumarbi was just another name for who the Romans later called Saturn. Saturn. Greeks called him Kronos. The Canaanites called him El. The Amorites called him Dagon. The Babylonians, the Akkadians called him Enlil. Same God, different names. The Hebrews called him Molech, He's all right? still around. Uh, He's still around, still influencing the yeah. world to this day. I argued in that book, by the way, that uh, he is also Shemiyaza, leader of the Watchers. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. the one they call the destroyer who comes out in Revelation 9, Abaddon or Apollyon. I think it's the same entity by different names. Anyway, to worship Kumarbi and to summon him from the netherworld, to ask him for favors, they, would de- they dug a ritual pit a necromantic ritual pit. The, the Bucciolatis found that this thing at, uh, at Urkesh, which is the name of this this sacred city for the Hurrians, went down about 45 feet. And they could only get down about halfway because uh, they were concerned about the walls of this thing falling in on the diggers. So they, they dug down and dated that portion of it to about 23, 2400 BC, but they figure it goes back to about 3500 BC. This was how the Hurrians worshiped their gods of the netherworld. Kumarbi, like Kronos, like Saturn, in the Greek and Roman myths, had formerly been the king of the Pantheon. He became the king of the Pantheon by overthrowing the sky god and castrating him in the process, and then in turn was overthrown by the... Yeesh. Yeah. I mean, it was, bad, it was bad enough when Kronos used a sickle, but Kumarbi uh, did it with his teeth. Well, so yeah, You're making a yeah. statement. Yeah. Uh, basically, <laughs> the sky god is powerless now because he's, he's not a man. Anyway, he was overthrown by the <laughs> storm god, Zeus, Jupiter, Baal to the Canaanites, mm teshub to the hurrians and that's why the storm god was the king of the pantheon again this was a key part of their ritual the, the priest would go down into this pit you know again down into a pit maybe 10 by 12 in dimensions but 25 30 feet below the surface would scribe a magic circle on the floor sacrifice a small animal like a lamb or a puppy or a piglet and then summon these gods from the netherworld and then send them back to the netherworld when they were done now these people the hurrians Again, they can trace their movements because of their very unique style of pottery. They trace them back to about 4,500 BC or thereabouts on the plains of Ararat, okay? The plain, the lowlands below the mountain where Noah landed the ark. And the, the name of this ritual pit is the Abi, the A-B-I. 1966, before, you know, 25 years before the site of Urkesh had been found, a scholar by the name of Harry Hoffner, who's a Hittiteologist, found And made the argument that, uh, etymologically speaking, based on linguistic rules, the abzu of the Sumerians, that word abzu, the abyss, could not have been the origin of the Hurrian word abi. It was the other way around. The Sumerians got the word abzu from the Hurrians. Okay. Hmm. It's also the origin of the word in Hebrew ov, which is usually translated in the Bible as medium. In other words, when Saul went to visit the medium of Endor, he visited the Ove of Endor. And remember Samuel, the spirit of Samuel came up from the earth. She had a ritual pit. This was a practice brought to Mesopotamia and brought to Canaan.
2: It's, it's in the new world. Like we, we did a whole episode on, on Chaco and then you have the cenotes. You have these. Yep. So this is what I'm this is. The kivas, yes, the kivas, right. that's what I'm trying to think of. Cenote is the cave. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We talked about those at Chaco. Like you have these ritual. So my all of this we know that like when that the spirits of the nephilim the demons their punishment would just stay here you, so you thinking are you saying in these pits they channeled the spirits of the dead nephilim and you think there was you think there was an impartation of this knowledge to worship not only them but potentially their fathers yes who were the watchers and that ignited this cult dude this is this is inter- this is super interesting because you, you yeah. know where that comes yeah. from, right? You, and you've got, it had to be this medium. And I'll let you finish on this because this is a great point. Because if the same word we talk we talked about the witch of Endor and, and the medium of Endor, whatever it is, who, who called up Samuel. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, something doesn't come from nothing, obviously. This, 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 right, this, right. So it,
1: well, we, all, we, we also talked this week, Luke, we were we just talked to Hugh Newman about Kahar and Tepe. Yeah. And it's basically how it was dug down into the no. ground. Like Le- Göbekli Tepe, you know, right, and then right. you, you you have these structures, and we were we were talking kind of loosely about why why do they build some of them in the sky, and why do they build some of them and like dig them down into the ground? And it seems like you have both those metaphors going on all the time in the in the in the megalithic societies, yeah, like, where they have like, yeah. like a ziggurat and then like a pit.
0: Yeah, and in fact, that's the that's the way it was set up at Urkesh, And also at uh, Eridu, which where you got the Abzu, the uh, temple of Enki, which I believe was the Tower of Babel which would have been the largest ziggurat in Mesopotamia if it had been finished. But archaeologists digging there back in 1949 discovered that the final level, which would have been the biggest ziggurat, bigger than the the Temple of the Moon God, the ziggurat of Ur, was suddenly abandoned and covered over with sand, Mm, mysteriously. You know, unless you read Genesis 9. But the same thing at Urkesh, where they had an elevated platform about 90 feet above the plain, and they had the temple on top of that. And then next to it was the ritual pit that went down about 45 feet. In Sumerian, the word ker, which means mountain, also means netherworld. Mm. Just like yeah, in Hebrew, the word Eretz means earth, but it also means the netherworld. You have to look at the context. Wow. So, you know, as above, so below. Right. It, it, means, it means both. I think that's really interesting because the chief god of Mesopotamia, the Mesopotamian version of Kumarbi, or El, Enlil, His chief, his main epithet or nickname, was Great Mountain. Now, did it mean Great Mountain or did it mean Great Below? Because by the time of Abraham, Enlil had been sort of replaced at the at the King of the Pantheon over that uh, period between Abraham and David by Marduk. Yeah, and uh, he had been demoted to the netherworld, where he became one of the judges of the netherworld. So, yeah, Great Mountain or Great, you know, Great Underworld.
1: Yeah. I've always wondered, you know, you have have Paul, you know, referencing principalities and powers above and below, you know, powerful class of, he says, demon gods that are held in these dark worlds in bondage. So, you know, obviously the Tower of Babel, they're building this tower up to try to access heaven. And Mm -hmm. then they're building these pits to try to access the underworld. They're always trying to access these different realms. And it seems as though you know we 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 see those circle pits all in south africa too we talked to michael tellinger there's 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 thousands and thousands of these these pits that they dug and they look like spirals into the ground and he says there's just remnants of giants all over the all over south africa hmm. and then we have these you know mounds all over north america all over the world pyramids all over it's china like south america yeah. yeah and so they're all doing the same things it's like the ancients understood how to access these realms and we're just sort of finding the clues or we're building CERN it doesn't make any sense to us yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're building CERN yeah. but it's like but but we're not I mean we're doing it with technology but they were you know using the earth to access and I just think it's interesting because you know The biblical writers kind of mention these things, but it just goes right past modern-day people. We don't even understand, like you know, okay, what is what is really Paul talking about? What are we arming ourselves?
2: It's like Heiser. It's like Heiser always talks about, like with Revelation, right? It's like that they when John is writing this, he expected you to know all of this stuff in the Old Testament. Paul expected you to know all of this extra biblical literature that he references. Yeah, it's there's this like requisite baseline. Knowledge that they were writing to, which is I, th- I think was beautiful about some of the stuff that Mike Heiser does, is that he's saying you're not who he, who they were writing to. You have to understand they had they thought you, they were writing to a class to a class of people to a generation of people that had this knowledge had read these books and lived this live experience, and it's not yours. And that's what I think is fascinating about this understanding. Like, man, when you talk about where Jesus was baptized, and then you realize, oh my gosh, if you it lived there at the time, you'd like, hey, that's very significant. Not only is it, is it fulfillment of prophecy, but look, it's here. It's just like his preaching at Mount Hermon, but he's doing this here. This is what they do here. This is where they worship the dead here. And this is Jesus basically claiming back those things which have been stolen, which he does in the spiritual when during his crucifixion, he takes the keys, the keys back. But he's doing this as he's walking, you know, walking around doing his ministry after 33 years of age. He's doing it strategically, um, which I, man, I... I That is a a huge eye-opener to me, just understanding what you just said about the way that they tried to access, and and the way that the things we know from the archaeological record about that these ancients did, and where they were, and how we date them, and how we relate that to the chronology of the Bible, and understanding, oh, they're in these pits trying to summon things, and these things they were summoning were telling them, this is how... essentially telling them, like, it, it's, it's, the, it's the Enuma Elish, right? It, it's the inversion of, of the creation story. The serpent is the creator god, God, or this this pantheon of gods, and they're really all kind of inter, inter-battling anyway. But it goes back to the original, to the dragon and the fall of the watchers and all these rebellious mm-hmm. characters that are vying for the worship of man and the adoration of man unto his own destruction and at enmity with the God of, the, with the god of Israel and God of the Bible.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely, and the, the question I get asked though is if if you're right in in this theory, and this God who led this rebellion, this this fallen Elohim. He's now in the abyss according to Peter, second Peter 2, verse 4. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, Tartaros in the Greek, right. uh, where they're in chains and gloomy darkness, according to Peter and Jude. How is it possible there's they're still influencing the world today?
2: Mob boss in prison. I mean, baby. you know it's, it's
0: well ex- exactly mob boss in prison. I mean, that's that's this that's the answer right there. And I think there's even a clue to this in, in Ezekiel 32 where he uh, is writing a polemic against the uh, the king of Egypt, and he writes that, you know, Egypt is delivered to the sword, drag her away in all her multitudes, the mighty chiefs shall speak of them, but as chiefs of the gibberim is the actual term. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of shale. They have come down, they lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So it's clear when you read the Septuagint translation, which was the version Uh, created by Jewish religious scholars about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, that those mighty chiefs are in fact the Nephilim, the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood. And then verse 22 in Ezekiel 32, Assyria is there in all her company, its graves all around it, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. The thing about the name Assyria is that in Hebrew, it's Asher. Asher was used for the nation Assyria it was also the name of the capital city of the Assyrians, and it was also the name of their chief deity, Mm. which was the Assyrian version of Enlil, or Mm. El, or Molech, or Saturn, Kronos, Balaam, etc., the same same, entity. So, is it Assyria is there and all her company or his company in the far reaches of the pit, which I think is a reference, and this is speculative, I've not cleared this with a Right. Bible scholar or Hebrew scholar this is speculation on my part but uh, I I theorize and I propose that this is a reference to Asher slash Enlil slash L slash Molech in the far reaches of the pit, in other words the abyss, Tartarus yeah. but still somehow in contact with these mighty chiefs, the mighty, the fallen from among the circumcised, that's verse 27 and there are some scholars who believe that that uh, word fallen, nophilim In Hebrew, should actually is mispointed and should read Nephilim. The Nephilim, among and uh, when you read the Septuagint translation, it's clear that that is who they are referring to. They slept Mm. with the giants who had fallen from eternity in the Septuagint, who descended into Hades with weapons of war. So yeah, it's I, I think it's it's these are the minions, the demons, the giants destroyed in the flood are the minions who are still acting as intermediaries between the surface world and those. Rebe- rebellious Elohim who are in the abyss in Tartarus.
1: Man, there's some, my mind is like thinking we could really get into like some topics to put a, put the rest of some of the ancient alien theories because it's just, they're just, in, <laughs> they're really. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is some of these names are just the same, it's the same character, just different names, different cultures, right. interpretation of the same story. But I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole as much as I do want to <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about, so we know on, we've talked to you extensively and other people on the show about how Jesus goes to, you know, Mount Hermon school well, scholars think, and that, you know, when he transfigures, he specifically goes there to do that, yeah. that miracle. And then, you know, he goes to the temple of Pan to say, this is my, this is where I'm going to proclaim against the, you know, the gates of hell. So you're telling, and then, so what I want to ask you about is this, his baptism, right? Because here we have him going to a specific place to be baptized. And if if we follow the line of thinking that he goes to specific places to do these miracles, what, ha- what does his baptism have to be there for? Because it's, from my understanding, baptism is very much dying, right. going down, Come on now. and then resurrecting, coming back to life. It is not... Lost on us as Christians. I mean, it is lost on us as Christians, what we're actually doing when we're getting baptized. We are dying and being reborn. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: Which that's a- part of it. But Peter had another another explanation for it too. First Peter three. Mike Heiser has taught on this, and we had the honor and the privilege of hearing him teach on this when we were in Israel together back in 2018 at the Jordan River. So there's jealousy. So no, everywhere, yeah, we're man. at the Jordan River, and Mike was teaching on First Peter three. And uh, he, he's told this story where a church that he was attending years ago, where the pastor was going, you know, verse by verse through the Bible and he gets to 1 Peter 3 and Mike's like, okay, this is going to be good. And the pastor said, well, okay, this next part is weird. So we're just going to skip it. And Mike's like, Verse Peter 3, beginning in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as appeal to God for a good conscience, and he goes on from there. He connects baptism to Jesus descending during the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Now, the Greek word translated spirits never refers to human spirits in the Bible, unless it is specifically qualified as such. Jesus and the spirits who did not obey in the days of Noah, who else is he talking right. about? Yeah,
2: then, uh-huh. yeah,
0: yeah, these are the watchers, the sons of God from Genesis chapter 6. Mike tells the story this way, you know, to refer to him again, but it's a great story. He basically says, Jesus descends, shows up in the abyss in front of Shemiaza, Azazel, and the rest that are in chains in... Tartarus and says, okay, bet you didn't expect to see me here, but here's a newsflash. At dawn of the third day, I'm getting out and you're still dead. Let's go. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a declaration of victory over these rebellious entities that thought they could create a hybrid army to take dominion of earth away from the children of Adam and Eve. Every time we baptize, we're basically sending a message to the abyss. Hey, we got another one and you're still dead. Wow. I like that. And
2: that's in, in the place of veneration and worship of the dead. Jesus not only filled Isaiah 41, but he declares his victory. Declaring and, victory. And saying, you're hmm. still dead. You are worshiping exactly. still dead entities.
0: Isaiah 26, I think, is a prophecy. One of a few that are in scripture, but I think this one is the most obvious. We don't see it in English because most English Bibles translate the word Rephaim the spirits of these giants, into words like the shades or the dead. Isaiah 26, beginning at verse 13, O Yahweh our God, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live. They are Rephaim, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance, remember the name, wiped out all remembrance of them. And then you go down to verse 19, and Isaiah writes, Your dead shall live. This is about the faithful. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. This is a prophecy of resurrection. Mm. This is Isaiah, you know, 700 years before Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give. Now, this verse is difficult. The earth will give birth to the Rephaim. Okay, now this is based on the Masoretic, Hebrew text, which wasn't completed until about 900 AD, so almost a thousand years after the Septuagint, the Septuagint makes more sense. The dead will rise, and those in the tombs will be raised, and those in the earth will be cheerful, for the dew from you is a remedy for them, but the land of the impious, or the land of the ungodly, will fall. Mm, do I like that. Wow. A scho- a, a scholar, A scholar by the name of Brooke W.A. Pearson wrote a paper on that verse alone and said, this being written in the middle of the period of history, you know, after Alexander the Great conquered Judea, can you know when when the Jewish religious scholars were very, very aware of what their Greek neighbors believed, which is why you've got translations in the Bible like the Valley of Rephaim becoming the Valley of the Titans yeah. or Valley of the Giants. This is a reference to Tartarus, the land of the ungodly, the land of those who created the Nephilim, the Rephaim, who will not be raised up. I think Ezekiel is also referring to this in Ezekiel 39, verse 11, when God says the the army of Gog of Magog will fall in the valley of the travelers east of the sea, and it will block the travelers. Interesting. What does that mean? It will block the spirits of the Rephaim? I think what it means is, as Isaiah writes, when the dead are raised up, like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be raised up in incorruptible bodies, but they're still dead.
1: It's phenomenal. Is this have anything to do with in like Matthew 27 when the dead rise, rise and after yeah,
0: Jesus' resurrection? Walk around? Do you think that has yeah. any connection? Well, I think that was sort of a, a foretaste of what it is because those people probably died again. I mean, they were not raised into incorruptible bodies, right. but the energy released when Christ was resurrected affected the faithful who were in the tombs. Um, the fact that Matthew mentions it, uh, you know, it's like there, there were witnesses out there who saw this happen. Walking
2: dead, people just cruising out of their tombs. Like. Yeah,
0: sure, yeah. David W. Lowe wrote a book about this some years ago called Earthquake Resurrection, because he points out that at the time of that, that that happened, there was a massive earthquake. And geologists and, and seismologists yeah. have now confirmed this. They found evidence of a massive earthquake that took place in the region of Jerusalem, yeah. core samples that were in, like near the Dead Sea, dated to about 31 AD, give or take a few years. And of course, being skeptics, they say, but well, this is where Matthew got the, the, the story of the earthquake at the time of Jesus. Like, okay, all right. You know,
1: I think this is so important because I think a lot of people walk away from their faith because they don't understand the concepts of living and dying and why Christ had to die and why Christ had to come, and, and I think that's just lost on modern day humans, especially when we're trying to understand the Gospels, because you have to go back to transport your mind back to the way that the ancients understood life and death, the way ancients stood the underworld, the way the way all these concepts that 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 you know preachers just preach the end of this movie and it's just so confusing because I mean, I mm-hmm. don't I I think people can still get saved and find Christ, but they don't I don't think they really understand what they're doing a lot of times, especially when we're young and we come up, you know, we go into these Christian camps and we get excited and we have this experience, but we don't it's like we don't really know what we're, what the concepts of life and death and and all the the salvation and it's just great to have these conversations because I think it gives more context and meaning to how the ancients understood it and 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 the cult of the
0: dead and what they were trying to do and like like Luke was saying it's sort of the inversion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's it's much it's really exciting when you see and you begin to understand the lengths to which Jesus went to buy back mm. our freedom from these entities. You know, the wages of sin are death. I mean, that's what we deserve. There is none righteous, no, not one. This is a very long game and these spirits have been playing it for a long time. I think that the creation of the giants, the hybrid creatures who uh, uh, were on the earth before the flood of Noah were there to destroy humanity, to take dominion of the earth away from humanity. The spirits of those demons condemned to wander the earth until, uh, uh, until the judgment. I think they're... Uh, their purpose is to try to uh, pull us away from the one thing that will save us from a bad end which is uh, accepting Jesus Christ and his sacrifice mm. but we we don't really understand the stakes i mean there's so many churches today some very popular new york times best selling christian pastors who turn jesus into sort of a cosmic life Self-help. coach yeah. you know yeah. right right yeah you live your best life now no no we the best life is the life that comes after the resurrection right.
2: It's our. It, if I'm living my yeah. best
0: life now, I'm doing it wrong. Isn't it
2: ironic that that the not ironic? It, it's, it should be expected, but the irony is not lost on on me. That, that like a lot of even in Christian churches, but a lot of the messaging is is self love, love yourself, and it's so contrary to the message of Christ. It was die to yourself, pick up your cross daily, mm-hmm. you know, reject your flesh, yeah, yeah. die to your flesh, starve the flesh, and feed the spirit. It is. It's not unintentional, it's very intentional, and, and I, I it's just funny because so much of that is swept into the church and it and it, and it feels like it, it is a watered down, and I like what Nate was saying i I like to understand the context you can believe on Jesus and you will be saved you're the, you're the thief on the cross, and you will be with him in paradise right right, but no one knows the height of the depth there's so much to, to discover and understand about the God we serve. And I think the more that we unpack this stuff and have these conversations and just understand the things that you're pointing out from geographical locations to adjacent cultures and to the environment and atmosphere that was going on when these were written, it's just it's such an enriching of understanding, especially when you understand the supernatural realm and those two things were not separated as they are now for us in a lot of ways, right? In our, in our culture, the, the way they operated, it's such a rich tapestry to understand how much Jesus was doing when he was here and then also just the the understanding of the Old Testament, you know, we we brought up Heiser a few times but when we had him on episode thirty four, I believe, Nate. We he basically told us he could spend his, the rest of his life in Genesis, and and I thought it was a really fascinating thing to think about because Genesis is is a lot a mystery in a lot of ways. It, it's it's the beginning and all this stuff, but you if you don't understand the context to which it's written, who it was written, and the language and stuff that it can be something that's that you, you want to skip and a lot of people do it's just like that verse in first peter it's like we'll skip this cuz it's weird you know all the circumcision and other weird stuff in genesis we're going to skip all this you know but it it matters and you don't need to make jesus any more than he is but i think that the impression of the magnitude of the things that which he did when we sit with you derek and we sit with people that, that have spent the 10,000 hours and we we unpack some of these things it's just the magnitude of the, the prophecies fulfilled and the intentionality and the things that he did in the physical that also were so intentional in the supernatural, or the spiritual realm, I just think are, it makes it a God that something you can't wrap your hands around. I think that's what people want sometimes is comfort and to wrap your, you can wrap my arms around this, this and you
1: can't. I think just like modern day, we, we, we worship science, right? We know all the scientific laws, and I think the ancients knew the spiritual laws, And they were just as real as modern day Newton, Galilee, all these guys that, that, that try to prove these laws of how nature works. Right. This is, and I think the ancients understood the spiritual laws and they knew how to manipulate them and they knew what they were just as real as, as our modern day, how we use math and technology to build things. I think the ancients understood the spiritual realm and the world. Even those who were in complete rebellion against God, way more than we do. There were laws. There were there was an understanding. There were books. There was they knew what they were doing. And and so many modern Christians try to interpret the Bible with none of this knowledge, and it's it's just confusing to them. They don't understand, so they just omit things because, like what? like you're saying, they just don't read that verse in Peter. It's just too weird, so we're not gonna read it. It's mm-hmm. it's you can't read the Bible like a modern human you and i think that's what we try to do on our show it's like hey the weird stuff's here the creatures are still here <laughs> you know let's go let's get in the time machine and go back and figure this out so that's kind of what i was going to say is that i think they understood this they're well, we don't know what they are but there's these laws that they seem to operate and understand very well we, we kind of discover them and we're like oh that's probably why they were digging down in the ground and building that thing in the air and i don't know it's just we're just, we just think, oh, that's a nice fancy pyramid. I'm like, nah, there did yeah, something else. Yeah.
0: It's something we don't even know what it is, you know? So, they were so primitive and simple. They thought they could literally build a tower tall enough to reach the sky. No, I'm sorry. The engineers in ancient Sumer knew that mud brick was not going to reach high enough to get into the sky and, and reach heaven. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, uh, yeah. Derek, I, I got, you know, we, we started out talking about the Valley of Shadow Death and kind of wanted to, and we, we did a, a, a big circle, and I love it. I think maybe my last question is, yeah, the one the more famous verses is it, Psalm twenty-three, and and though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Mm. And and understanding now, like the amount of where, where you know where we believe it to be, and the amount of dolmens, and it being right in the epicenter, or at least a, a, or touching the epicenter of this cult of the dead. What do you think they were so afraid of? What was happening there? You think that that would, if you walk through there, uh, not be afraid, and I will fear no evil? I mean. Listen, like everyone's going to interpret it as metaphorical, but I, I don't think we, li- we live in that space. It's this, this not a metaphor. This, this is, you don't need a rod and a staff to protect you from a metaphor. This is something real. What, so my thought is, what do you think is happening there that, that elicits this kind of response from the psalmist, from David?
0: That's, that's really an interesting question. Sharon has really done some good teachings on this, and uh, she's pointed out, and I, I should have noticed this, that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22. Okay, that seems kind of obvious, right. <laughs> but we need to remember that when these were compiled, there were no chapter divisions.
2: They're seamless. Okay.
0: Yeah. There were no there were no chapter divisions. And Psalm twenty-two is a messianic prophecy. It's the one that begins with the line quoted by Jesus on the cross: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see in chapter in verse twelve of Psalm twenty-two, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Mm. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Um, Uh, Again, with the the anti-supernatural bias of modern Bible teachers. Oh well, it's because Bashan was a land famous for its cattle. Actually, that's not true. There's a scholar by the name of Dr. Robert Miller II who wrote a paper a few years ago and pointed out that based on the soil in Bashan, you can't grow enough grass to feed cattle to pasture cattle. Yeah. There were no bulls of Bashan. The paper that was titled, The Bales of Bashan, he said that these bulls were not bovine, they were divine. It's a supernatural thing. And of course, this is a reference that Jesus draws upon on the cross. So maybe we should pay attention to that. I mean, verse 19 but you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Uh, that term, wild oxen, is a reference to the aurochs, which was a giant strain of cattle in the, in the ancient world, and probably one of the faces on the cherubim. Yeah. Again, I think we're dealing with supernatural entities here and not
2: not just a wild, not, not a, not a yeah, murderous We're, we're not cow. talking
0: save me from wild animals <laughs> yeah. here. And the 23rd Psalm is like, okay, you're leading me into enemy territory here. This region where the cult of the dead is known, the pagan gods, their pantheon, which is the enemy of the God of the Bible. Right. Okay, this, this is David, of course, writing the 23rd Psalm. And he was familiar with this area north of the Sea of Galilee, by the way, because one of his wives was the daughter of the king of Gesher, which was based at Bethsaida. So he was familiar with this area. He chased a rebel all the way to a city called Avel Beth Ma'akah, which is at the north end of this valley. David knew this area, but he also knew that this was where, this was like the beating heart of the Canaanite religion. Hmm. Uh, There are Canaanite myths that place the activities of of Baal, Baal. I only say it that way so scholars know that I know that that's how you're supposed (laughs) to pronounce it Baal. Anyway, in that Hula Marsh. Okay, this was an area that was known to be important to the Canaanite religion. And uh, I think what David is saying is here, is even though I'm in the middle of enemy territory, I'm no longer on the ground sacred to Yahweh, I'm on the ground sacred to this enemy pantheon, this foreign pantheon, I will fear no evil because you, my good shepherd, are with me. And Sharon puts it this way, and I think it's a beautiful metaphor, because when we go out into the world and we're confronted by, as Paul wrote, you know, the principalities and powers and cosmic rulers over this present darkness, the humans that are cursing god and doing these ungodly things are not angry at us they may be swearing at us they may be spitting on us whatever but it's not us they're angry at it's 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 him it's god and they themselves are just human shields for the principalities and powers behind them so when we are confronted by these spiritual struggles these entities that are trying to distract us demoralize us discourage us it's like hey look the shepherd is right behind us and he's got a rod and a staff and that rod is used for a cosmic beatdown so if you've got a problem with me power principality throne dominion whatever talk to the shepherd because he's right behind me and i think that's what this is all about they use
2: those those tools to kill wolves and lions i mean if we're talking about actual like you know what shepherds add
0: yes now get this uh, again, talking about the valley of the shadow of death. In verse 5, you remember we talked about how the Golan Heights, that area is ringed, covered with these dolmens, yeah. these monuments to the cult of the dead. Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before, before me, me in the me, presence in the presence, uh, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But many of us have memorized this yeah. psalm when we were in Sunday school. Or we sing it. But yeah. no one... Sharon gave this presentation on the 23rd Psalm at a conference in, uh, well, in your neck of the woods, actually, we were in uh, Murfreesboro oh. a couple of years ago, and she said, now imagine this, in the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by these dolmens. A table. Prepares a table, for, and 200 people just all went, oh, yeah all at once when they got it. You could hear the intake of breath. That's my wife. <laughs> She's pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is what this is about. This is another... Reference to that, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's a literal place, yeah. and Jesus again declared war on it with his baptism, and then he declared his divinity three years later, right at their headquarters, the base of Mount Hermon, and then the Transfiguration on the summit. Yeah, he's like, is he talking yeah. about is the
1: is the is the is the you know the cup that he's talking about? Is that similar? Is that talking about what they did in these dolmens when they're trying to offer to the dead?
0: The, there are many archaeological finds in the ancient world, like, like the kings of the uh, the Amorites from this period of history depicted in their, their tombs, you know, as a basically a seated posture with the right hand out holding a cup. Because you know, when you're just a regular human dead, you know, your descendants had to call you once a month on the 30th of the month. The kings got called twice a month on the 15th and the 30th. Yeah based on the texts that have been found. And that was their cup was there. You fill the cup up. So the king has something to drink in the afterlife and you leave food offerings in these tombs for the kings. So yes, I think the cup running over was again, in mockery of these dead and the cult of the dead and the fact that in their worldview, they had conned humans into doing these rituals to support them in the afterlife, You know, not knowing that this is not how the afterlife actually works. The last supper is a reversal of that whereas the the fallen realm these fallen angels and the demons that inspired all these pagan religions wanted the shedding of blood especially human blood you know the the cult of molech still very active right. today the number one cause of death on planet earth is terminating unborn children anywhere between 42 and 75 million per year based on world health organization statistics depending on which part of their website you believe that is how they are sustained in the afterlife. Shedding of human blood. Jesus shed His blood so that we would have eternal life. Mm. Completely reversed it. Wow,
2: Derek, dude, I man, I I love I love these discussions. I I love having you on, man. <laughs> I, it's it feels like you're getting like a you know a year long course and in in about ninety minutes, and it just but it always makes me think about these things and also just. The under, understand. I mean, I'm not going to rehash what I've said before because it's the same thing. It it is just. It's thank you for for the work you put in and the research you put in to, to share these things because I think they're so profound. I, 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 it's so profound. You know, our, our little show. I, I'm just glad people get to listen to this because I I think it's so important to understand contextually the things that that our that our God did. Yeah, you know, it, to to bring us back into. Bring us out of enmity with God into a place and back into God's family. And it is... I, want, I don't know how we get on an Israel trip with you and go and go do this, but I think that, that I would love to just to have you point all these things out in person because my brain gets a little scattered trying to figure out where Galilee is and what's on the other side of this and what's on the side of that. <laughs> but uh, I have
0: a lot of maps saved on my hard yeah, drive I over he's, here. He's so got, yeah, he's got a lot of
2: maps in that office. Before you go, tell us about you know you said you got a book
0: coming out. Talk about some of the things you're doing. And, and well, you can see, five days a week at Skywatch TV with the daily news update called Five and Ten, and then uh, Sharon and I produce about I don't know, four hours of content a week ourselves our weekly Bible study, the Gilbert House Fellowship, which is a verse-by-verse uh, study of the Bible, releases a podcast on Sundays. Uh, my podcast, A View from the Bunker, goes up Sunday nights. We've got uh, Unraveling Revelation, which is our weekly 30-minute program for uh, End Times Prophecy. And uh, what's the other thing? Oh, PID radio. We brought that to oh. the podcast that started the whole thing back in 2005. Are, so early on in the game that Apple was actually begging people to submit. Uh, they submit wanted content, right? Podcast. And they're like, no
2: more. They're like, stop yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> no now, now it's like, stop. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're
0: overwhelmed, you, you, uh, but we're still there. We got in early. So they grandfathered us and grandmothered us. you Go in, find, those, so go find those cassette
2: tapes and pull them out and, and run, <laughs> r- r-
0: put them in the stereo <laughs> right? spin them up. Yeah. Oh, no, we were, we were, we were early adopters. We were doing MP3 oh, before mp3s Those cool. are content machines um, it's amazing uh you guys just but we got a free app where yeah. people get all of it on the app you can find that at our website gilberthouse.org this uh, the upcoming book will be called uh, the gates of hell but we're also doing a video we're going to israel actually well we'll be there a month from today come to think of it as we're recording this and we're going a few days before the tour so we can shoot some video at sites that we're not going to visit on the tour like this other site near bethsaida that's similar to gilgal rephaim we're going to the serpent mound of Bashan. We're going to go to uh, Tel Avel Beth Ma'aka, which a scholar named Edward Lipinski points out as the place where Enoch delivered his message to the weeping angels. Wow, okay. He's like, yeah, this is a a well-regarded scholar. And he said, okay, yeah, it's got to be here at this location. And that's right on the edge. That's right on the edge of this valley, the valley of the shadow of death, this Hula Valley surrounded by dolmens. And we hope, we hope we're going to get a chance to go to that... uh, Shamir Dolman Field with that massive dolman with the 50 ton capstone. Yeah. So we'll be shooting video there and we want to put that together into a presentation or a documentary if you will, to go along That's with awesome.
2: the book. Fantastic. Well, we'll be on the lookout for awesome. that. That's awesome. Derek, thanks again, man, for everything. Yeah. It's just great, yeah, it's great so to much. see you. And yeah. Thanks just for, for
0: teaching us tonight. This has been fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's another, right? enjoy this i'm still that first grade kid that used to come home from school every day saying hey mom guess what yeah.
2: now it's just hey sharon or mom oh, and mom yeah. and, uh, you know seven o'clock in the evening hey mom guess what it's like, derek? <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: <laughs> why are you calling me derek yeah. dude thanks so much derek appreciate you coming back on blurry creatures All right, thank man. you we'll see you say hi to sharon
2: god yeah, bless her right. you bet Later.